You're listening to We Are History. I'm Angela Barnes. And I'm John O'Farrell. And we are back. Like, back, back. Proper back. And John, we're in an actual studio. How good is this? We've had to put trousers on and everything. Speak for yourself, Barnsey. Yes, <laughs> this is the first episode we've recorded in a room together since before COVID. <coughs> Yeah. So, so let's, funny. let's hope that Angela and I uh, don't find out that we don't get on anymore. And of course, right, it's so exciting because we are now being properly whipped into shape. This is like a proper legit podcast now uh, because we've got the lovely people at Podmasters UK as our new overlords. We've got an actual producer, the glorious Anne-Marie Luff. And look at these microphones, John, right? They're not stuck to the table with blue tack like that. mine is in my house. So... Uh, for the uh, first episode in our new home, Angela, you are leading on this one. It's something close to your heart. It is. I am indeed leading on this one, John. And can I start by saying you look absolutely radiant? Little clue there, listeners. So can I ask, <laughs> did you have a radium bath this morning, John? <laughs> no, my hair falls out perfectly naturally. Thank you very much. <laughs> Actually, funny you say that because I have a shower in the morning and I had this... Uh, sort of soapy shower wash, but it's luminous green and it's like it's quite what, sort of tingly. Is it radox? It might be. Well, they might we might find out why radox oh, is radox. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, so up. I asked because today we are talking about the early 20th century craze for the apparent health and beauty benefits of the naturally occurring radioactive metal radium. Oh, now you see, we've learned things since then, haven't we? But, we have uh, we're a few. Learn. We'll come the, to that. I love the way we always sort of uh, tease the subject of our podcast and it's on it's on people's iPhones. It's I like, know, they already know what it's about. <laughs> it's about. You've, got, you've got to play the game, John. Yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> so you read a book about this, didn't I did. You? I read a brilliant book about this um, by Lucy Jane Santos. It's called Half Lives. And radium mania was a bit of a thing across Europe and America for a while in the beginning of the 20th century. You could buy radioactive toothpaste from boots. Oh, dear. So we're going to look at how that all came about and how so-called atom cures, quite unsurprisingly, fell out of favour. Right. So I should say here at this point, John, that surprising as it may seem, we, you and I, not scientists, and this isn't a science podcast. To be fair, Barnsley, we're not historians either, and that has never stopped us. To well, that's very that. true, yeah. <laughs> so in this book, the author does go into more detail about the science than we've really got time to do. Uh, so we're going to be talking more about the products and people's reactions to radioactivity um, yes, over right. time in the early 20th century. Um, however, we do need to do a little bit of science. So as they say in the shampoo ads... Here comes the science bit. Okay. Right, brace yourself, John. Yeah. We'll try and whiz through it. And if you've got any questions, <laughs> just keep them to yourself because I'm not going to have the answers, all right? Okay, that's okay. a deal. So firstly, everything contains radioactive material. Did you know Brazil nuts are a thousand times more radioactive than other food? That is insane. What yeah. Brazil nuts? I think it's to do with the soil where it's grown has right. radium salts I, in it, I think. I wonder if when uh, George Bush and Tony Blair saying that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, he actually just had Brazil nuts. Just had Brazil nuts. <laughs> just had loads of Brazil nuts. That's probably it. <laughs> so, John, we're not actually going to go as far back as I usually do. We're going to go back to 1895, wow. so just a little bit before the beginning of the... 20th century. This is good. (laughs) And a German scientist who was called Wilhelm Konrad Röntgen. Excellent pronunciation. Thank you very much. Sprecher gern Deutsch. Um, He reported his findings on X-rays. Right Now, he'd been working with cathode rays. There was a scientist called Crookes who developed something called a Crookes tube. And it was something to do with cathode rays. And John, I don't really know what I'm saying. So I'm just going to plough through this It sounds like Star Trek. It's like, yeah, yeah, they use the cathode rays in the Crookes tube. (laughs) You know, cathode rays is something to do with big tellies, isn't it? Yeah, the old-fashioned tellies. Cathode ray tubes. Anyway, he discovered, while 
playing with these, that there's this new type of ray and it was capable of passing through most substances, including the soft tissues of the body, but it left bones and metal visible, right? Okay. And one of the first X-ray images that he made, or having discovered these X-rays, and he called them that because X is for unknown, um, was of his wife Berta's hand, right? And you can see yes. the pictures online of it. It's quite, And you can see her wedding ring on it. Um, but she wasn't very happy. It, it sort of freaked her out a bit. And apparently she, when she saw the picture of the inside of her hand, she said, I have seen my death. Wow. Quite to see your tragic. own skeleton is quite a thing, I suppose. It is. I guess because we know, you know, we know that people know what x-rays were from yeah. since we've been around. That first time must have been... Yeah, it must have been quite something. It's quite a... Yeah, this is inside you. Wow. Now, Röntgen never patented his discovery because uh, he believed that science was for everyone. And what that meant was that because there was no patent, everyone could have a go at making x-rays and they became right. a bit of a craze. You could buy DIY kits. Uh, Thomas Edison got really involved with x-rays. He made a handheld version called a fluoroscope. Uh, people wrote poems. They had all these flights of fancy about x-ray specs and all the naughty things you could do with them. And photographic studios, because we know Victorians loved a photo, they began offering bone portraits. <laughs> How Victorian is that? Yeah, Would you yeah. like a bone portrait is, on your mantelpiece? That's hilarious, isn't it? I do, it reminds me of that episode of Friends when they come back from the hospital. Rachel's had an x-ray and, and they're just coming in the door and Ross is saying, for, for God's sake, it's not possible to look fat in an x-ray. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah. I remember when, when I was a kid, it was completely normal to go into the shoe shop and put your feet in the little x-ray machine and see your feet inside the shoes. And, uh, what? Yeah, little girl, let's give all the children of Maidenhead uh, radiation. <laughs> and uh, you didn't if you weren't buying shoes. It's, Mum, Mum, can I put my feet in the x-ray machine? There was an x-ray machine at the shoe shop? Yeah, yeah, you'd put your Are feet you, in. Were you a Victorian child? <laughs> and, and often it was clogs in those days, of course. Angela. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's quite normal in the 60s to put your feet in the x-ray machine in the shoe shop and look how they were fitting. Wow. I know. That's why my hair fell out. <laughs> yeah, you tell yourself that, John. <laughs> so the medical community obviously also saw the use of these x-rays pretty much straight away. And in the meantime, there was a French physicist called Henri Becquerel. Right. And he'd been studying phosphorescence, so sort of glowing particles. And he thought there might be a connection with phosphorescence and x-rays. And so he did some experiments and he worked out that uranium was emitting radiation by itself without being stimulated by sunlight, which is what they thought was happening. So this is something quite new. Are you keeping up with this, O'Farrell? Do you know what? My last chemistry exam was when I was 13. I got 2%. <laughs> the, the, I'll the, take that the, as a note. The teacher put, John's performance this year has added a totally new dimension to the term idleness. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I'm not keeping up. Not that that's stuck with you already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. <laughs> um, so this, basically, this starts a flurry of discovery in the physics community, not least by one Marie Sklodowska-Curie. And I'm going to say something about her name here, because... Obviously, she's known as Marie Curie. She was married to Pierre Curie. She was Polish. But actually, at the time, she used her name, Skrodowska. Oh, okay. And so it, it, we're going to use her name as well, rather than her married name, because that's what she used as a scientist. Um, so she hypothesized that this radiation was not the outcome of some interaction of molecules, but must come from the atom itself. And this is a big deal, because up to this point, science is pretty unshakable in its belief that the atom is indivisible, that it's the smallest unit of matter. I'm nodding. Matter. Yeah, OK, I'll just carry on. <laughs> so yeah, don't cry, atoms. John, it's oh, going to be all right. Atoms, We're nearly there. Atoms indivisible. Got, got it. Yeah. 
So now, obviously, we could do an entire episode about the Curies and, and all of that. But for today, we just need to know that she and her husband, Pierre, were working on these theories of radioactivity. OK, so what, Angela, is radioactivity, though? You know, or like really basically, like when it's in Brazil nuts. OK, John, I'm not going to pretend that I understand radioactivity. Okay. I've really tried. You know me, I'm into my nuclear bunkers and all that yeah. stuff. Um, but so what I've got is a description from a website called Radiation the Basics. <laughs> okay. That so I'll me. read it. Then please don't ask me again. All right. Hashtag not a science podcast. Okay. okay read right. it. Read away. So I can read it if you want. Okay. I read it. Go on, you read it. Radioactive elements emit ionizing radiation as their atoms undergo radioactive decay. Radioactive decay is the emission of energy in the form of ionizing radiation. Ionizing radiation can affect the atoms in living things. So it poses a health risk by damaging tissue and DNA in genes. I don't think you can get any clearer than that, John. I, I think I just said words there. I you mean, did. I, I, might as well I just, just been... see you weren't taking in the meaning of those words even remotely. You, you could have put that in, in Croatian. I wouldn't have understood it anymore. The important anyway. thing is, though, at this time, obviously people didn't know the way that radiation affected the human body. It was assumed that any radiation that you might have got onto you or in you was excreted, passed out gone to, forgotten about you weed away your radiation basically yeah, yeah, yeah like we was glowing C. it must have been <laughs> yeah so after discovering radioactivity Slodowska Curie was particularly interested in these minerals that contained uranium because she observed that they emitted much higher levels of electrical energy than she thought they would have okay so from the subsequent experiments that are too complicated long boring to go into hashtag again this is not a science podcast in July 1898, they discovered the radioactive element polonium, uh, which was named after Marie's home country of Poland. Ah, now that was the, wasn't that, an, wasn't it an isotope of polonium? Uh, 210, 210, I think, that was used in the murder of Russian defector Alexander Litvinenko. I can almost say that in 2006. <laughs> yes. The Russian defector, you know who I mean. I know it's who you mean, John. Sorry, I'm just enjoying you trying you, to say Alexander me all the Litvinenko. Half I mean, thank um, goodness you didn't make me say the uh, original name of Marie Curie. <laughs> You'll have to at some point, I'm sure. This caused outrage in Britain, didn't it? Because uh, it, did. it was a state sanctioned killing taken place in British soil. And also, they ruined a perfectly good pot of tea. Which yeah, that's the thing English. we got most angry about. Then in December. 1898, the Curies discovered dun, 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 radium, right, which comes from the word radius, right. which was Latin for ray, as in beam, not reardon. I love that um, fact your go-to Ray is Ray Reardon. I know, I couldn't think... Well, Ray only... Charles, Ray Charles, or, well, yeah. or there's footballers. I'm trying to think of for... modern Rays, but there aren't any modern Rays. You can't have a baby called Ray. Ray Parler, footballer, no. You, John... I'm going to look at you when you say footballers to me like you looked at me when I talked about radiation. Okay. Okay, we'll go with Ray Reardon then. Ray Reardon. So it wasn't named after Ray Reardon, is what we're establishing. So as you can imagine, male scientists at the time in this late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, were absolutely fine about these discoveries made by a fairly young woman using equipment that they didn't really understand or know. Uh, and they definitely didn't question everything she discovered or make a big noise and fuss about it. Obviously, they just accepted it fine and oh, didn't question it I know, I know, I know that ironic face that Angela puts on. <laughs> All that's for another podcast. <laughs> okay. Anyway, polonium was quite difficult to separate from these minerals. 
So because radium was slightly easier to isolate, it became the thing that they concentrated on. Okay. So a bit more science here. Yep. Just so people know what radium is. It's a chemical element with a symbol RA and atomic number 88. Named, a, yeah, right, that we named after the bus that goes to my house and clap. That's right. Yeah, okay. That's exactly what they did. <laughs> it's the sixth element in group two of the periodic table, also known as the alkaline earth metals. Okay. Uh, all isotopes of radium are radioactive. The most stable isotope is radium-226, which has a half life of 1600 years. Oh God, double chemistry on a Monday. Uh, well, a half life <laughs> is the time taken for the radioactivity of a specified isotope to fall to half its original value and not how long I feel I've spent on this sciencey bit. <laughs> Phew, are we past right. the science yeah, bit we, now? Yeah, we're done with so, that. Can we go, okay. and, go and sit outside? Let's sir. get to the funny bit now. <laughs> okay, so radium. So radium's a metal then. That's something that I would not have sort of quite... Of course, if it ends at IUM, it's usually a metal. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. Uh, so tell me about... Um, Madame Curie, as I'm not supposed to call Slodowska her. Curie, John. Okay. Tell me about... So uh, she referred to this new radioactive element as my beautiful radium. Okay. And it made the Curies famous. Um, there's even an illustration in a 1904 edition of Vanity Fair where you just see the Curies sort of holding aloft. It's a beautiful drawing by an illustrator called Imp, I okay. believe. They're holding aloft this glowing vial of radium. Oh, dear. It's, it's like, the, only, an like the opening image. of The Simpsons, isn't it? With a, with a bar down his back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the Curies discovered that radium chloride would give off this glow that's caused by radiation because uh, it agitates the nitrogen that's naturally present in the air and that vibration creates a buzz of energy which is perceptible as this shimmer of light. You're doing science again. It's a history podcast. Okay, sorry, yeah. So uh, to begin with, Lots of medical applications were found for, for radium. Yeah, and it, it started to be used as a treatment for tumours quite early on, didn't it? Ooh. In 1901, when Pierre Curie suggested it could be used to shrink them, it was called Curie therapy. The Curie cure would have been better, actually. But actually, you yeah, um, you should go get in your time machine and tell them. <laughs> um, but um, though these things have developed a lot over the years and the principles of it can still be seen and used today in cancer treatments. Yeah, yeah. The basic, it's called brachytherapy, I think now, but that sort of basic idea of putting a radioactive element onto a tumour to shrink it is, yeah. is still used. Most they got there quite quickly and then they went sort of mad with all the other stuff, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also, of course, back then, it was all unregulated and the inherent dangers of using radioactive materials weren't really appreciated. So the equipment they used wasn't always safely discarded. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you'd have the problem of they didn't really know what amounts of anything to use. So while the basics were there, it was pretty dangerous. Yeah. And actually in, in 2011, they found a, a discarded radium needle in a playground in Prague. Wow. Which caused the radioactivity levels of this park to be like way above... Normal. Okay. So, yeah, suddenly the needles that you find on Clapham Common don't look so bad, do they? <laughs> no, That's just the Brazil nuts from the muesli. <laughs> <laughs> so, genuine belief amongst the medical community that radium could cure cancer and other diseases. And also, I hope it would have a number of uses, uh, including for uh, heat and light. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget. But at that time, heat and light in your home wasn't quite as simple as it is now. Electricity was quite feared because... It could cause fires, electrocution. You know, the safety systems we've got in our houses now, they didn't have. So to bring electricity into your home was really risky. Right. And so you use gas to provide heat and lighting. But again, there's fire risks, there's carbon monoxide risks. Gas is quite dangerous to have in your home. Right, yeah. So this radium, the, the promise it had, seemed far more appealing prospect to have that around the home than this dangerous stuff like gas and electricity. <laughs> if only we could tell them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
But I think more interesting for us, though, is the way that Radium was marketed as this sort of home health product in the early 20th century. Yes. It was quite usual, wasn't it, for physicians at the time to endorse questionable cures and treatments. They weren't quite as rigorous about checking on the cures uh, that they recommended. Quackery and pain medicines were still popular. Uh, And you could buy things like cocaine tablets for hay fever, whereby you'd still have hay fever, but, you know, you'd just tell everyone about your screenplay at great length and at great (laughs) speed for all evening. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So no patent had been issued for the methods that the Curies used to prepare radium chloride, a bit like with x-rays. So by 1899, all sorts of scientists and scientific companies and chemists managed to prepare these radium salts and could begin to market them for various things. And so a craze for radium was born. And Lucy Jane Santos, who's the author of the book uh, Half-Lives that I read, she's got a website where she showcases a lot of the products that were marketed at the time. She's collected quite a lot of these um, images. So it's yeah. well worth a look. Yeah, I had a look We'll on mention them. some of them. Yeah, they're funny. Um, for example, in 1904, a Dr. William J. Morton, who was a respected doctor from New York, he devised something he called liquid sunshine, And it was supposedly a treatment for cancer that involved the patient drinking quinine and then being bombarded with radium rays because he believed that the quinine would enter the bloodstream and the radioactive rays would make it fluoresce. So you would glow in the dark under UV light, lighting up the body from inside and destroying all the germs and diseases. And it sounds a bit Mm. mad to us, but (laughs) bearing in mind, this is just on the back of like in the late, 19th century, there was a real craze for sunshine therapy. You yeah. know, people put in the sun to cure tuberculosis and all sorts of things. So this idea of rays was something these late Victorians, early 20th century people were really into. Yeah, and you have to bear in mind that uh, places where they had been deprived of sunshine, uh, they, children were developing rickets. Mm. So it was clear that there was sunshine was a healthy thing to have in your life. And so yeah. the idea of this put glowingness inside your body might have seen like a logical next step. I'd yeah. say liquid sunshine sounds like a, a crappy pub band from the 1970s. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome Liquid Sunshine. Um, uh, yeah, also worth mentioning that the biggest concern about all these products at the time wasn't that they uh, contained radium, but rather they might not. So, for example, there was a, a brand of condoms called Nutex that claimed to be uh, radium condoms, but actually didn't contain any. What a scandal. Uh, and they just used the name because it was fashionable. Um, yeah. A bit like how there are no penguins in a penguin, really. What? No penguins in a penguin? <laughs> Some entrepreneurs really seized this opportunity because radium was fashionable. They trademarked the name radium in various different fields. So in like health and beauty and whatever. Um, So they could use it as a brand name. So things that said radium didn't always contain it. It was just a brand name because it was fashionable. Like Um, Iron Brew. Iron Brew's got no iron in it. Has it not? Made in Scotland from girders, but it's not true. It's (laughs) It's got no girders in Iron Brew. (laughs) No. But there were products that definitely did contain radium. Uh, And you could just pop into Boots the Chemist and you could buy your sparklets, radon bulbs, which promised to turn your ordinary water (laughs) into carbonated radioactive water, like a sort of edgy soda stream. Yeah. Could I I have a a gin and Chernobyl, please? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That is incredible, isn't it? so many of these devices yeah. add radium to your water. So you could buy radium salts that could cure your violent husband or your nagging wife. Wow. There was even a radium golf ball company which claimed their balls were packed with radium to help them fly through the air. Wow. You could use uh, 
Doramad, radioactive toothpaste, uh, yeah. various sorts of radium-enriched pads or belts to be worn or slept on. Many devices to help with performance issues in the bedroom, yeah. such as a radium-enriched jock strap, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> uh, or if you didn't fancy that, apparently a radium suppository would have had the same effect. So basically people were sticking radium up their bum. Up every orifice. They were <laughs> sticking it wherever they could stick it, basically. <laughs> that is insane. It became so fashionable, radium, that um, it became the name of a wedding anniversary. It was Aww. the 70th wedding anniversary. <laughs> it became radium. But ironically, nobody who used radium lived long enough to celebrate it, probably. <laughs> That's very good. Um, I, I mean, now? I won't get there. What is that? Will I? That's 70 years. It's platinum now. Oh, thank you. Okay. But I didn't get married till I was 44, so I'm going to have to (laughs) live till I'm what? If you keep taking the radium, you might. Well, you never know. So. So in 1903, the American Museum of Natural History exhibits an example of radium salts and people go mad for it. It was so popular, this exhibit, people wanted to see the radium salts um, that they had to control the crowds with police. Right. Although by all accounts, it was actually a bit of an anticlimax once they got in there. And one woman said to reporters, what I expected to see was a chunk of something shooting fire and electricity and stuff and powerful enough to call off a strike. Instead of that, I saw a little powder in a glass bottle. I wanted the wise guy in charge to prove to me that it was radium, but he said I'd have to take his word for it. <laughs> so yeah, similar crowds were seen at museums in this country, but of course, they're far too British to complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did, yeah, absolutely. The Natural History Museum here as well, I believe, had crowds. Wow. So one of the downsides, though, of all this sudden commercial popularity of radium was that there's a lack now of available radium salts for medical use because obviously, you know, you have to source the minerals, Mm -hmm. do whatever you need to do to them to turn them into radium salts. And so people that wanted them for genuine medical use weren't able to get hold of them. So a new business popped up, which was the business of hiring out radium salts. So chemists would purchase radium salts and then hire them out to hospitals or whatever to meet demand. Okay. And this provided jobs for women um, who were taken on to be so-called radium runners. Okay. And their jobs were to courier this, these radium salts from chemists to hospitals and labs or whatever, wherever they were needed for a fee. Yeah, and this was said to be an ideal occupation for a gentlewoman who'd fallen on hard times. Mm. They had to prove their moral worth, the radium runners. Sounds like a sort of 70s band, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but so anyone who... Uh, on a double bill with liquid sunshine. Yeah, that's right. What a, what a set that we... <laughs> um, anyone who was deemed untrustworthy might take the opportunity to nab some of the valuable stuff. So these respectable women would get paid up to £10 a month to run the sorts between the labs and the hospitals and wonder why their hair was falling out. Yeah, well... <laughs> So another thing that was something that was popular at the time was glow-in-the-dark paint. Yeah. Now, that had already been popular before radium came along, um, but it had been made using phosphors, which meant they need charging with light. Right. Um, so pretty quickly, people realised that radium luminescence might last longer. Yeah. So they started experimenting to make paint and tried lots of different ways to do it. And this might be of interest to you, John. Oh, yeah. Because in 1904... A radium dance featured in a musical extravaganza on Broadway. And I know how much you love a Broadway musical I extravaganza. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire opening in the West End. This soon. week, yeah. This week, oh, yeah. this week as yeah. we record. Excited. Yeah. Get your tickets. They're probably all gone now. Too late. <laughs> Snooze you lose. Um, so this extravaganza on Broadway was called Piff Puff Poof. 
Um, which I think the most shocking thing about that is that I've now learned the phrase piff puff proof was not invented by the great Soprendo, which I always assumed it had been. <laughs> oh, Jeffrey Durham. I think it goes back a bit. This is how it's described in the book. Um, shall I read this bit out, Angela? Um, yeah. Oh, no, you read this bit out because you've got me. Okay. So well, this is how this is how piff puff proof is described in the book, John. And I'm interested in your expert thoughts on this visual spectacular. Um, Since the stage was plunged into darkness and the orchestra... The baton of the conductor was also apparently painted with glow-in-the-dark paint, began playing the piece of music written especially for the play by Gene Schwartz, the Radium Dance. Half of the pony ballet appeared on the darkened stage dressed as Piero with sugarloaf hats and skipping ropes. The other half were dressed as Pierrettes with coronets, ribbons and special shoes, all glowing in the dark. They now perform the dance, which seems to have involved a lot of synchronised skipping, using ropes that were also painted to glow in the dark, in time to the music. A rather conventional ragtime number with a fast beat and a catchy tune that had nothing to do with radium. It sounds fine, but, <laughs> you know, when you come to Mr. Doubtfire, you get pie in the face, tits on fire. You know, I mean, what, that's what theatre, that's, 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 that's why I studied drama for three years. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I'm a bet at the time, this was quite something to see. Uh, mm. I went to see a show called um, The Fantastics on Broadway, and they had a really, they had skeleton costumes that glowed really Brilliantly, not using radium, I'm sure. Yeah. It is a great visual image. So back then when they didn't have all the effects that we have now, this must have been quite impressive, I bet. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, might have, might have even got a decent review in the New York Times. <laughs> Bastards. Um, <laughs> so, you let it out. No, you, let it out. You, you use this podcast event. That's okay. <laughs> now, one of the most popular ways to get your dose of that good old health-giving radium was to attend a radium spa. Taking the waters at places like Bath and Buxton had been a therapeutic jolly for the well-to-do for some time. But in 1904, the Daily Mail advertised Bath by extolling the virtues of its radioactive waters. Yeah. So the world's first purpose-built Radon Spa, as it was called, uh, was set up in the Czech Republic in 1906 by a Dr. Leopold Gottlieb of Berlin. And there's this town in the Czech Republic called um, Yakimov, which was a a mining town, but it was an enormous source of pitch blend, which is the mineral from which uranium could be extracted. And it was from this mine that the Curies got their pitch blend to work on to and discovered radium in the first place. So it has this sort of esteem, this mine of being where it originally came from. And so they opened um, the Experimental Spa Institute, um, which I'm not sure I'd want to go to a spa that had the word experimental <laughs> no. in it, but there you go. And um, in, the, in the, its first year, in 1906, it had 30 patients, but by 1908... It had 228 okay. patients visiting the spa. And one of them was Edward VII himself. He visited in 1909. Uh, sorry, yeah. 1909. Did I say 1808? No, then? no, 1909. Yeah, but no, just then I said 1808 when oh, I went right, right, yeah. 1908. It doesn't matter. You get it. So he visited um, in 1909. When did Edward VII die, actually, Angela? Well, I'm not sure. That's a really good question. <laughs> I think it's around then. It is around that time, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Might he took some of the radioactive water, yeah. so it might explain a lot about the royal family that came. Um, so these radium spas and emanatoria, emanatoriums, where these emanations could be sampled, mm. popped up all over Europe and you could go relax and breathe in the benefits of radon gas. Popping up all over Europe, yeah. So by 1911, even here in Bath in Britain, favoured favoured haunt of Jane Austen and people like that, and uh, Haile Selassie later, as you know from a previous mm-hmm. podcast, um, they're being marketed as radium spas. Some I don't think it... 
they shout about that quite so much now. Yeah, I don't think, I think the author said, I can't remember if it was Bath or Buxton, to be honest, but said she was looking at their display about their history and they barely mentioned this little period. Right, that's interesting. Um, yeah. At Buxton in 1912, the waters tested positive for radioactivity. So it was then marketed as such. You could book in for a stay at the Hydro Hotel. You pay your two pence to enter. Drink as much of the radioactive stuff as you like. And you could take it home with you as well. They bottled radioactive mineral <laughs> waters, uh, which was said to mix well with spirits. Or it was sold as British water for British whiskey, which sounds a little bit Brexit. It, it does, um, doesn't it? Yeah. So um, the concerns, there were concerns about radium use at the time, mm. but not so much that was dangerous, but there was a lack of standardization. And so you might not be getting the amount of radium you're paying for. Or worse still, your radium products might not contain any lethal radium at all. Exactly. Like we said before, that was the main concern, that you were being fobbed off yeah, with your radium yeah. products. So in September 1910, the International Radium Standards Committee was formed, uh, which comprised of the Slodowski which comprised oh, Sadovsky-Curie. Oh, I had it then. It's always good being, you know, a, a, a feminist and giving her her name, but it's harder to say than Marie Curie. <laughs> well, in that case, you know, we should just dispense with feminist principles when it becomes too hard. <laughs> but her name's hard to say and sounds a bit foreign. <laughs> right, I'm going to try that again. I'll take a run up. <clears throat> Which comprised Slodowska Curie yes. and Ernest Rutherford, That's more who like it. I really like Ernest Rutherford. Um, he was from New Zealand. And not only was he a pioneer in the field of radioactivity, he had an element named after him, which is Rutherfordium. And it's quite often a pointless answer on pointless. Oh, so that's worth remembering, go. everyone. Yeah. Um, and they all got together, these scientists, and agreed a unit of radioactivity and a radium standard. Yeah. And it was called a Curie, named after Pierre Curie, her husband, who had died under the wheels of a horse-drawn carriage in 1906, sadly. Very good, very good. And one Curie equaled one gram of radium. Okay. And Marie Slodowska Curie, thank you, prepared the first radium standard, which was a sample of radium chloride weighing 21.99 milligrams in a glass tube, and it was deposited at the International Weights and Measures in Paris. I wasn't listening to any of that stuff. No, I, was, I know. I, I was remembering Rutherfordium as my as a pointless answer. I'm storing that up. Storing that up for, for next time. Problem I... is, I think it's one of those ones, I think, like oh, because it keeps it coming up. Everyone knows it now, ah. but only because of pointless. So Did you get a pointless answer from pointless? Did I get a pointless yeah. answer? I can't remember. Oh, I, I did. First time I went on, pointless answer. Ah. And then I was out. Then you were out. I was out yeah, the first I was round. Out. First time I went on, I was out because of Rich Hall. And the second time, I can't tell you because it's not been on yet. Oh, so, um, I'm looking forward to that. You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> okay. Right, I reckon this is as good time as any for a break. So I'm off to smoke a radium cigarette. And I think, by the way, he's been squirming. John's radium jockstrap might need adjusting. <laughs> Told you you should wear trousers. So we'll see you shortly. See you after this. Hello and welcome back to We Are History, where we are talking about the radium mania of the early 20th century. So the world is happily bathing in, smoking, drinking, inhaling and wearing all this radium when the world is hit by the Great War. Yes, and of course that means that things slow down a bit in the old uh, radium trade for many reasons, not least because a lot of the people involved in the manufacture, distribution and selling of radium products are bundled off to the front. Uh, yeah, and a lot of the raw materials needed to make radium salts come from Germany, Austria and the Czech Republic. It wasn't called the Czech Republic then though, was it? It was no, called in Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia yeah, then. the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Yeah, I, I think it was part of... Um, yeah, yeah, that. So exactly. uh, trade with the enemy, uh, you know, trade with the enemy not allowed means that supplies are now low. Yes. So during the war, um, Marie Slodowska Curie 
sort of moved her focus a bit and she operated mobile x-ray machines at the front. Um, There were over 200 units uh, that her and her team used to treat over a million soldiers during the conflict. And in fact, one of the x-ray nurse technicians that worked with um, Sladowska Curie was Lisa Meitner, and she would later go on to be part of the team that discovered nuclear fission. Well, that's very... Isn't that impressive? Very very interesting. Yeah, she was a student of Curie and then, yeah. Wow. So, after the First World War, when supplies could be reinstated, uh, radium became popular again, but this time not just with a focus on health, but on beauty too. This is quite fascinating, I think, because before this time, beauty treatments such as they were, were things to be hidden, to be embarrassed about using. that's interesting. Um, Because I, I suppose it showed you were deficient in some way if you were okay. using beauty treatments. So it's only around this time that the big department stores like Selfridges started putting their beauty products on display rather than being under the counter and yeah. hidden. And this is, this is the start of women's magazines and the beauty industry um, as we know it today. Yeah. I mean, I don't suppose you spend a lot of time on beauty TikTok, John. I, I don't, if I'm honest. Um, no. no. But I'm quite fascinated with it because continuously since this time in the early uh, 20th century, there have been these weird and wonderful potions and treatments that promise eternal youth and get rid of wrinkle and all these things. So it's easy to look back at this time and think, oh, they fell for it. What idiots. But quite, you should see some of the shit people are pumping into their faces today. You know, Absolutely. Botox, all sorts of... Skin bleaching and all that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. telling women they, they need to look young and beautiful forever is quite the moneymaker. Yeah. Um, I got an email the other day, yeah. <laughs> like from, I don't know, some company, and... The subject, it said, have you been doing your lash routine wrong all these years? Oh, you haven't, have you? And I was like, I'm supposed <laughs> to have a lash routine. It sounds like an I S&M don't know thing. what that is. I'm 44. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm 46. I don't know what it is. And so there's, there's like these videos on TikTok I've got obsessed with, right? Right. And they're called no makeup makeup videos. And they teach you how to do your no makeup makeup in less than 30 minutes. John, do you know how long it takes me to do my no makeup makeup? I'm going to guess less than 30 minutes. Actually. No minutes, John. <laughs> Absolutely. So, the, you know, we can laugh and look back and go all silly idiots but it's, yeah, you know yeah, yeah but today it you ever all, was you, you get people injecting stuff into their lips and you know all oh, sorts, yeah, all so, sorts who knows and silicon boobs and who knows all those the, the side effects of these things have yeah. yet to come out so part of the reason for this of course of uh, being the starting point of the beauty industry is that there was a tragic lack of husbands uh post-war for obvious reasons. Nearly a million men died in the First World War in the UK. Um, And the beauty industry could really exploit women's desperation to find a husband. And it wasn't just a superficial desperation either. If you've listened to our History uh, of Marriage episode, you'll know how hard life was for the unmarried woman without uh, a personal fortune. You know, you, you were you were stuck if you were a woman, a spinster. Yeah, so it was competitive to get yeah. her husband and the beauty industry really capitalised on yeah, that. Yeah. And also, as life expectancy began to increase in the 20th century, it meant ageing became a problem. Ageing wasn't a problem when you all died at 35. Yeah. Um, you know, no one likes old faces, John. Ugh. No, no, get them off television. Yeah, exactly. I mean, men Quite. not so much, but older women. Older women, get over 40, get, get them off out. the television. I think we're all agreed on that. I think we yeah. are, John. <laughs> Irony again. Uh, so now, rather than miracle cures, radium was being marketed as a beauty treatment. That's right. And one of the first pioneers in this field was Helen Cavendish. She marketed a range of beauty treatments under the name Caradium. She originally called them radium treatments, but um, one of the people who patented the word radium uh, sort of came after her. So she called it Caradium. Right. And she marketed herself as a specialist in radioactive toilet preparations, mm, which with our modern brain just... All the alarm bells going there, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, quite. Um, 
And the adverts really emphasised her status as an expert in radioactivity and she, and that it was this sort of scientific radium preparation. Yeah. However, there was no compelling evidence at all that she had any scientific training at all. But another name, which is one that you might have heard of, um, is Helena Rubenstein, whose right. name is still used on beauty products today. She was a Polish businesswoman who went to Australia and then America, I think. But she marketed radium products in a similar way to Helena to Helen Cavendish, yep. and she styled herself as a beauty scientist or a cosmetic scientist. So these sort of cosmetics were moving out of the realm of nature and, you know, this old kitchen physic idea of, yeah. of, of, of remedies and beauty into the science lab. You know, she yeah. wore a white lab coat in her publicity pictures. Oh, I love it when they do that. When, um, when, they, when the adverts have got people in white coats, you'd think, oh, now I feel reassured. This absolutely. Cat food, this cat food has been scientifically developed. And there's people in white coats with the cats running around the lab. It's like, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think yeah. that's sterile, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. Uh, and she's surrounded by test tubes and bottles and she maintained that she had chemists and doctors as permanent members of staff and finally she started talking about the clients of her all her beauty salons of which she had many as patients visiting okay. her operating rooms yeah. so it became this really clinical setting for beauty treatment and I thought it was very reminiscent of beauty ads today that use these sciencey words that we don't question there was one I heard right Yeah. I'm sure I haven't dreamt this it was a little while ago and I swear to god it had the phrase contains a thousand microbeads of care <laughs> You're like, I they're not even trying now. Well, that doesn't make, make up any old doesn't shit. mean anything, oh, these words. And oh, it reminds me, excuse you, me, this has only got 800 microbeads of care. I'm bringing it back to the yeah, shop. Yeah, exactly. Like, what yeah. is a microbead of care? Yeah. And the, um, it reminds me of the dihydrogen monoxide parody. What were those? Parodies. So dihydrogen monoxide is just another way of saying water. Ah, I see. And there's been over the years, since the sort of 70s, I think it started, there's been lots of trick campaigns. So there was a New Zealand MP once who was tricked into saying, you know, it's terrible, I've got dihydrogen monoxide coming out of the taps and you know because it sounds yeah, yeah. sciencey so yeah, people yeah. believe it's bad or it's, it's like you know bifidus digestivum yeah contains bifidus digestivum yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So they were really exploiting. And at this time as well, x-ray machines were in all your beauty salons had x-ray machines um, to help you get rid of that unwanted hair from your face and body oh um, or to treat things like if you have ringworm or skin yeah. complaints. Blast yeah. it with an x-ray. Job wow. done. And men didn't escape it either, did they? As ever, they were susceptible to any marketing that offered increased sexual vigour. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm always answering those small ads. Uh, in 1923, <laughs> the manual life could purchase a radium-soaked blotting paper to put under his scrotum at night to enhance sexual virility or radium tablets to give you Superman power. Superman power. Blotting, blotting paper under your scrotum. Yeah, yeah. sounds nice, doesn't it? So by the mid-1920s, the reputation of radium was starting to tarnish a little bit. It had 20 years in the spotlight. Um, and then there were two really quite famous cases that that contributed to the fall of radium, radium's popularity, really. And first was the story that you might have heard of, of the radium girls. I saw them. They were support for Liquid Sunshine. <laughs> I knew you were going to say And the Radium that. Runners. <laughs> <laughs> this is a big lineup we've got. This is the next Glastonbury we've got sorted. Um, one of the most popular uses of radium, and the one that seemed to have a future, was its use as a glow-in-the-dark paint. Um, this had lots of military applications, navigation, and all sorts of things. But also domestic applications, for example, it was used on clocks and on watches to read them in the dark. Yeah. So the famous uh, watch manufacturer Ingersoll bought enough radium to produce one million glow-in-the-dark watches. And during the First World War, they were marketed as ideal gifts to send to your loved one at the front. 
Uh, and to be fair, radium was the least of their worries. Yeah. Um, they were also marketed to farmers and miners with adverts suggesting it was much safer to have a radium watch uh, than to light a match to read your stupid non-glow-in-the-dark watch <laughs> in a hay barn or down a mine. Right. And, and if you couldn't afford to buy a new glow-in-the-dark watch, you could take your standard pocket watch and have it upgraded with glow-in-the-dark radium paint. Wow. A formula for this self-luminous radium paint had been developed in the 1910s by a physicist called Sabin A. von Sushoki. And he'd worked with the Curies back in the day and um, so and developed this paint out of what he learned working with them. And it was given this not at all sinister sounding name of Undark. <laughs> Yes. That video game. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so I'm working on Undark. Okay. Walk okay. away slowly. Don't make eye contact. <laughs> yeah, some difficult names in this podcast you've got, Angela. I think you mean, next week choose something with really really easy names. Okay, right. yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. I'll just I'll just do uh, the next episode will be all exclusively about British people with Smiths, British names. The Smiths. Yes. That's why that's why the conservatives want to British history. <laughs> Easier names to say. Um yeah, in the uh, in the US, the factories making glow in the dark watches uh, usually employed women to paint the dials, and it was quite a coveted job actually. With <laughs> Uh, a five-and-a-half-day working week, painting around 250 watch faces per day for $20 a week. Yeah, it was a coveted job until they started dying. Ah. So by 1924, nine painters from the US Radium Corporation were dead. Uh, one of the first to die was Amelia Maggia, and her death was originally blamed on syphilis. Oh. Let's talk about adding insults to injury. Because yeah. if in doubt, John, as to why a woman's died, it's probably because she was a slut. Right. Um, that, that's your go-to reason. But when her body was exhumed as part of the investigation in 1927, the cause of death was confirmed as radiation poisoning. Yes. So there was a lawsuit uh, asking for $250,000 for each of these girls that died. However, this was happening all over the US and legal action wasn't brought for most of the cases. By the mid-1920s, it was estimated that there were more than 120 plants across the US employing more than 2,000 women to paint dials, many of whom remain unnamed and unremembered. They are unremembered. Although in Ottawa, Illinois, there is a memorial statue of a woman dedicated to all the radium girls and every Christmas locals drape the statue with a red homemade knitted scarf to keep her warm. Okay. Um, the girls died because in the factories they were working in, they'd been instructed to use a technique called pointing. And what that meant was using their mouths to get a fine point on the paintbrush. And the radium paint was tasteless and odourless. They'd been told it was definitely harmless. And it was estimated that each painter might have ingested between a few hundred to a few thousand micrograms of radium every year. So the companies tried to use the fact that radium had been used in therapies for the previous two decades, supposedly without harming anyone, as their defence. They insisted that these employees' deaths were caused by existing conditions. In 1928, the president of the US Radium Corporation wrote to the New York Commissioner of Public Health saying, The work was easy, the operators were well paid, and as conditions turned out, we unfortunately gave work to a great many people who were physically unfit to procure employment in other lines of industry. Cripples and person, persons similarly incapacitated were engaged. 
What was then considered an act of kindness on our part has since been turned against us, as all previous employees, regardless of what they may have been suffering from or are suffering from at the present time in the minds of the general public, can be attributed to radium poisoning, inverted commas. So what they basically said was, because we were so kind and we employed all these disabled people, now they're saying that the reason they're sick is because of the radium. But it was just that we employed all these misfits in the first place. That's why they died. It's not our fault. We were nice. So remember Sochoki himself who developed the paint? Yeah. He'd parted ways with the company quite early on and became an advocate for the prosecutors. Wow. Um, because he knew what was happening. And in 1925, while he was helping the investigation to test these these women, these painters, he noticed while testing them, he tested himself and his breath was significantly more radioactive than theirs. So he began to know his fate. Oh, As he was dear. seeing them dying, he knew that his fate would be the same. And sure enough, he died six months after the case was settled. Wow. Um, and up after the case, better protections were given to workers in the paint factories. So they included fume hoods, they'd get rubber gloves, and there was um, a complete ban on this lip pointing. Uh, yeah, and the investigators were able to learn a lot more than was previously known about the effects of radium on the body. It was discovered that it did not pass straight through the body, as had been previously thought, but accumulated in various organs. Uh, because there was no effort to go, it continually irradiated the surrounding cells. Yeah, the radium basically bombards the skeleton with this alpha radiation, blasting holes in the bones and irradiating the blood-forming bone marrow. And because it has a half-life of 1,600 years, this assault continues long after the person's died. They don't die and it's, you know, that radium is still they're decaying. Yeah, I'm starting to feel a bit less comfortable about us including radium drinks on our merch, Angela. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, um, Anne-Marie, can you, can you strike that off? Yeah. We won't have, we won't, we won't, I mean. No more liquid sunshine. No more liquid sunshine on the, uh, on the We Are History merch website. Yeah. <laughs> The truth was coming out about all these dangers. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s, there was a steady stream of dying radiologists because the effects from working with these substances were coming to fruition now, decades on. Yeah. And in the book that I read, there's lots of stories of people who've gone, who just gone to have things like simple hair removal treatments. And subsequently, 18, 20, 25 years later, they're dying these horrible Deaths. And we'll never know how many people actually died because of radium or X-ray treatments because it wasn't documented. Yeah. Also, you didn't know what did contain radium and what didn't out of the things that were marketed as such. So it, it, there's no way of knowing exactly how many people died. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, and yeah, we're talking about the uh, 1920s and 30s. In my lifetime, we were still, you know, um, having radioactive sort of shoe machines to look yeah. at your feet. And dentists, x-rays, the people giving the x-rays didn't hide in the other room like they do now, mm. go behind a protective place. So even though they knew it back then, even in the 70s, they were still, people were still being exposed to x-rays. Incredible, really. Yeah, yeah. Another case that you might have heard of is that of Eben Byers. I don't know if you've heard of him, John. Nope. Um, he was this handsome American socialite. He was an industrialist, a sportsman. He won the 1906 US Golf Championship. Can't believe Everything I going for him. him. Um, but he's famous not for that particularly, but 
um, for something quite gruesome. He he injured his arm and things began to fall apart when he couldn't play golf, he couldn't do sport and eventually it affected him psychologically, it affected his sporting performance and later, apparently, his sexual performance. Oh, yeah. So he consulted his uh, doctor, a Charles Clinton Moyer, uh, who had a background in electrotherapeutics and x-ray therapy and he was quite well respected in, in his field and he recommended that he take something called Raditha. Now, Raditha was this triple distilled radium water, which was developed by uh, William Bailey of Bailey Radium Laboratories. Now, I'm not saying that this influenced this doctor prescribing Raditha to his wealthy clients, but Bailey did offer the doctor a $5 rebate for every case of Raditha he sold. It's private medicine, I'm telling you. Yeah. That's the way it goes. So (laughs) even buyers, like he did with everything in life, took to it with enthusiasm, drinking an average of three bottles a day for the next couple of years. He felt invigorated by it. He recommended it to all his friends, including the athlete Mary Hill. He even gave it to his horses. Yeah. And then after a while, uh, some symptoms came to the front. He began to lose weight. He had headaches and toothaches. And at first, a bad case of sinusitis was diagnosed by his doctor until it was recognised through comparison to what happened to the radium girls that maybe his body was slowly decomposing as a result of radiation poisoning. Yeah, and because of his public prominence, his case was taken very seriously by the authorities. And on the 19th of December, 1931, Bailey Radium Laboratories was ordered to cease and desist making claims about the therapeutic value of Radithor and from representing it as harmless in every respect. Absolutely. His friend Mary Hill, who he'd given it to, died in 1931, and Evan Byers died the following year in 1932 and an autopsy showed necrosis in both jaws anemia brain abscesses damaged kidneys ravaged bone marrow Byers' bones and insides were all highly radioactive, despite him not having used Raditha for more than a year at that point. His body was um, buried in a mausoleum in Pittsburgh uh, in a lead-lined coffin to protect cemetery visitors from radiation that was still being released from his remains. They all got lead poisoning instead. Mm. Um, Dr. Moyer, who had prescribed the Raditha, told press reporters that the death of his patient was caused by a combination of blood diseases that had induced gout and insisted that he himself drank more of the stuff than Byers did and was absolutely fine. (laughs) And despite the public outcry, it didn't stop the use of radium products or the selling of patents for them. No, in fact, in the week after Byers' death, which was international news, uh, the director of the spa here in Bath was interviewed and he said that the backlash against Raditha simply showed the positives in using natural waters like those at Bath. These natural spas that were just fortified with a bit of radium salts. Right. Um, so around this time, lots of the spas did stop mentioning the radioactivity of their waters as this stuff was being revealed. Uh, but Bath actually continued to extol the virtue of their radioactive radium salt fortified waters Right up until the Windscale fire in 1957, which was the worst nuclear accident the UK's had. And that started to change people's opinions on the old radioactivity a little bit. Yes. So um, those uh, younger listeners might not know what Windscale is. It's a big nuclear power station up in Cumbria. Yeah. Uh, now called Sellafield. Now called Sellafield. They rebranded huge... it. They get, they get, it's much better. If you put a new name on it, the problem goes away. Yeah. And Sellafield, uh, um, you know, rebranded as a uh, uh, a visitor centre. Maybe it's got, they should have a spa there. That might be a really good idea. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they should. So the entertainment industry that had previously eulogised radium now began to reflect on its its darker side. 
1932, the filmed Blonde Venus, starring Marlena Dietrich and Cary Grant, focused on how a commercial chemist's radiation poisoning destroyed a family. She's never seen that. And 1937, in the film Nothing Sacred, Carol Lombard played a watchdog factory girl who was supposedly dying of radium poisoning. And then, of course, there was Marie Slodowska-Curie herself. Um, she'd gone virtually blind by the time the 1930s came around. She'd had lots of eye operations in the 20s. And in the summer of 1934, she fell seriously ill. She went off to a sanatorium in France for a bit of that beneficial mountain air. However, while there, it was confirmed that she was dying. And she passed away on the 4th of July, 1934, at the age of 66. And it was assumed that it was her beloved radium that had killed her. And I think that assumption went on for quite some time. However, apparently in 1995, the bodies of her and Pierre were moved from the graves in this um, cemetery in Sceaux, um, where they were buried, because she was being reinterred in the National Mausoleum of France. She was the first woman who was awarded that honour in her own right. So it's quite a big deal. Right. And uh, but they obviously knew they had to be very careful when moving the bodies because they'd be ra radioactive. So... When they exhumed her, they found she'd been buried in this multi-layered nested coffin with a coffin of lead sandwiched between two wooden ones. And because of concerns for safety, the coffin was punctured and a small sample of the air was taken to be analysed. OK. Um, I haven't thought about the French town of Sceaux since my teenage years, where the French family Bertillon and the my French exercise books, they lived in Sceaux. Ah. And it was, I remember thinking, how when they during dictation, he said Sceaux, how on earth are we supposed to spell that? And just seeing it there, <laughs> S-C-E-A-U-X, takes me right back to La Famille Bertillon, Marie-Claude Marie Bertillon, Déménager à Sceaux. Something to share that with people of my age who had the same French language books as I did. Yeah. Um, Marie, anyway, Marie Curie, back to Marie Curie's coffin. Uh, surprisingly, the radon levels of the coffin uh, suggested that radium content of Sklodowska Curie's body was not high enough to have been the cause of her death. Angela. That's right. I was quite surprised at that. Yeah, a, yeah. So it was said that the sickness she had was most likely caused by the X-ray work that she did in the First World War. Blimey. So. Yeah. Production of radium products was slowed again by World War II as factories were repurposed to make ammunitions and supplies for the war effort. Radium paint was still used during World War II, despite what happened to the radium girls. Uh, but the practice of pointing was not to be used. No, and during the war, there was also this fear of what might happen. If these buildings and factories that has all these large quantities of radium in them, what if they were bombed? Wow. It's believed there was enough radium in these buildings to kill the whole population of the UK. Um, so the National Radium Commission eventually decreed that all radium, whether in public or private hands, must be registered and stored in safe places approved by the Ministry of Home Security. Right. So after World War II, attitudes in radioactivity began to change across the world. By 1939, Germany, France, Britain and the United States had all tried to harness nuclear energy in a race that would ultimately be won by the Allies and the Trinity nuclear test of the 16th of July 1945 in New Mexico and subsequent bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. And despite, there was this brief sort of period in America of this uranium fever, they called it, yeah. um, where they sort of celebrated socking it to the Japanese. It was a different time, John. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you could buy atomic perfume. You could listen to Doris Day singing about Geiger counters. There was this immediately after the bombings, after the war, as part of the celebrations of victory there was yeah. this uranium fever but it didn't last that long as the Russians worked to develop the hydrogen bomb and the fear of the devastation that radioactivity could bring suddenly was more at the front of people's minds than these health giving or beauty benefits yeah. of radium and in 1946 the University of California Radiation Laboratory in Berkeley 
devised the thing that we all know and recognise, that somewhat sinister radiation warning sign. You can picture it, can't yep. you, John? You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Radiation trefoil, it's called. We, we sort of instantly recognise it. And it, I always get little shivers when you see it. Yeah, yeah, it's like sort of thing you draw on your exercise. Like yellow and black. Private, keep out. It was originally, um, I, th- I believe it was like magenta and pink or something, okay. or magenta and blue, something like that. It's completely different colours, but now it usually is bl- um, black with red... Uh, Black with yellow or orange. Very different to the Atomcraft Nine Danka sign that you get up on the back of two CVs in the end. Yes, quite. Um, most of the products we've discussed are still with us. Maybe not in the form they were in, but with a half-life of 1,600 years, radium still leaves a trace. So each item had a corresponding legacy from the buildings where they were manufactured to the shops in which they were stocked. 2010, a Guardian investigation revealed that portions of the 2012 Olympic Park in London had been built on land that had previously been the site of companies producing glow-in-the-dark paint for watches and clocks during the Second World War. Discarded dial face, painted with radium, had been found by contractors as early as 2007. Many of the buildings used to sell or manufacture these products are still in use with their occupants completely unaware of what their prior function was. So those Mayfair salons of Helen Cavendish and Helena Rubenstein, they're still in use. Um, Glow-in-the-dark radium watches are highly collectible. They come onto the market sometimes now in quite poor condition and they might not be luminous anymore, but that's not because the radium ran out. They're still radioactive because the radium is not going to run out in any of our lifetimes with a half-life of 1,600 years. Okay, but it, apparently it won't do you too much harm to wear one occasionally. The real danger is when repairing them, often people do that without realising there is radium present. Yeah, so if you've got one, don't wear it all the time, don't sleep in it, and probably don't place it on your bedside table at night. That's same, the advice. Same, same with the Brazil nuts. <laughs> yes. Keep them well away. Um, yes. More surprising, though, I thought... Radon spa culture still does thriving business. Can you believe that? In places like Germany, Czech Republic and Austria. So, you know, if you do fancy a radon bath or inhaling a bit of radon gas, knock yourself out. Personally, I think I'm going to stick to the matey bubble bath. That's a a fascinating trawl through the commercial (laughs) aspects of radiation. Seems to me like they're... You know, Chernobyl, they should have just put some some uh, spa waters on top and invited the tourists to come and I don't, I don't think benefit. radium was the problem in Chernobyl, John. Oh, no, no, it's something else. It's all the <laughs> I, same in John, my non science I, th- I think your um, lack of application to your science lessons is showing somewhat. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's all, it's all very dangerous. But, Hashtag not a science podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, um, yeah, incredible that that went on for so long and it took them so long to realise how dangerous it was, you know, even into my lifetime. Yeah. Um, that's it, isn't it? Thank you. Yeah, that'll do. Um, that's it from us today. Do read the book, Lucy Jane Santos's uh, Half Lives. It's a really good read and loads more that we didn't have time to go into. Yeah, yeah. Um, have a look at the website with all the funny products on. Yeah, yeah. She's got a website and um, I should probably have noted actually what we'll it was. We'll tweet it out. We'll tweet out a link to that, uh, hang on, hang on, to that funny that. website. Yeah. And it's going on her laptop. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go on to her website. It's just uh, lucyjanesantos.com and she's got a page um, where she's documented all these... Brilliant products. ...these findings and these yeah, uh, yeah uh, wild and weird radium-based yeah. <laughs> products. So, yeah, have a look at that. And don't buy any of them, though. Spend, them, spend all the money on limp, lip implants instead. <laughs> and we've got some exciting news. If you want to support us, we now have... John, are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say drum roll, but neither of us know how to do that. Near enough. I mean, that, that just sounded like I'd just done a bad joke. Okay. <laughs> Not that I was going to announce something exciting. <laughs> this, but, um, this is exciting. Okay. I don't even know what this news is. Listen. I'm going to do it anyway. This is breaking news for John as well. We have a brand new membership club. Oh. Um, where you can get We Are History mugs, T-shirts. You can get shout outs on the podcast. Okay. And much more. It keeps us 
in books. It means we can afford to actually make podcasts and give them to you rather than leaving you hanging for six months wondering yes. whether we're going to be able to squeeze it into our busy schedule. And it encourages us to make more of them. So you can click the link in our bio on Twitter or Instagram or any of those places, or you can visit podmasters.co.uk slash history for more info. That's just a way that you can um, support us and help us to make more We Are History for you if you'd like us and to. And you'll get some stuff back with a bit of luck. You'll get some things. We'll give them off. We'll offer them something, won't we? Maybe. Special shout out. Let's not make promises okay. we can't keep. Special shout out. No, we aspire. <laughs> I've, I've it's not a manifesto commitment. Just... <laughs> it's an aspiration. <laughs> That's it for We Are History this week. We may be back next week. We, we... can't promise anything. But um, um, we aspire. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at We Are History Pod. And we'll see you next time. See you next week. Bye. We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production.